Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Guess who's back? Back again. Dax is back. <laughs> Ryan's back. Triple Threat. Welcome to the Triple Threat <laughs> Theater Podcast. This is episode number 27, and my name is Ryan Miller. I'm Joe Daxberger. I was not <laughs> expecting that, sir. Well done. <laughs> just came to me in the moment, and I had to do hey, it. That's what's so good about this. You know, it's just off the cuff. <laughs> Shooting from the hip. Yeah, boy. It's the only mm-hmm. way I know how to do it. You got it. Planning ahead? I ain't got time for that. Nah. Nah. That's not our style here. <laughs> well, welcome back once more, Dex. You too, friend. And welcome back, dear listener. Yeah. Hey, friend. <laughs> Episode 27, Nighttime. Presumably, you've seen the title of the episode written out on Instagram if you care to follow us there. But if yeah. not, Dax, why don't you tell the people why this episode's called Nighttime? Well, my pleasure. Because it's all about them knights in shining armor, Milsey. Mm. We've got. 1981's Excalibur. Yes, we do. 1985's Flesh and Blood. Yes, sirree. And 2001's A Knight's Tale. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All the nights, all the time. Uh, I feel like an episode like this was inevitable. Certainly. So we've now done dragons and knights. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Didn't occur to what, me before. What's left? Wizards? Fucking A, yes. Uh, We'd better have a trio of those coming up sometime. (laughs) Uh, No, I get down with the wizards. Yeah, I'm writing that down right now. Wizards. (laughs) How many of these movies had you seen before, if any? I have seen A Knight's Tale without remembering a single thing about it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm close to that. I had seen A Knight's Tale. It had been a long time. Many Moons, 2001, you know, just out of high school. I don't even necessarily think it was something I saw in the theater, but it feels like I saw it 18 years ago. It's been that long. Yeah. I did not see it in the theater. I'll tell you right now, the I think I only ever saw it the one time a long time ago, and the most standout thing about the movie to me, if I'm thinking back about A Knight's Tale the first time I watched it, was... A young woman by the name of Shannon Sossaman, mm-hmm. who early 2000s Ryan had a major crush on. Oh, was it because of this and Don't Tell Me, 40 Days and 40 Nights? No. <laughs> oh, that's the that's the Harrison Ford movie, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Harrison All right, Ford. No, all right, give me a second. It's something, it's uh, It's more the other movie. It's this and another movie. Oh. It's more the other one, which I... Haven't seen in years. I'm kind of afraid to say that I'm a big fan of, but I have been a big fan of it. What is it called? Rules of Attraction. Oh. I don't know that one. What's the one I'm thinking of? Which one? With Josh Hartnett (laughs) and her. Josh Hartnett and And Shannon Sussman. 
he's like they it's like really bad like early 2000s like right before the internet bubble burst and they both work for like online companies and he has to be like celibate for 40 days or something oh she was in that yeah, <laughs> i never saw she, that movie i know what you're talking about though that's what i know her from yeah she's like the main girl in it okay what the hell is that called i don't know I, I I know the movie you're talking about, but I cannot remember what the fuck it is because I never saw it. Let me fix this. Let me let me simultaneously look that up and add it to a trifecta. <laughs> Rules of Attraction is a movie directed by Roger Avery based on a book by Brett Easton Ellis, who also gave us American Psycho. Oh, okay. Uh, it is 40 Days and 40 Nights. 40 Days. Oh, well, what's, what's... Oh, Six Days and Seven Nights. That's the Harrison <laughs> Ford movie. <laughs> Oh jeez! All right, wait, 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 wait I got right We just got to come up with another title that's days and nights. <laughs> you gotta write that down. We can't forget that. Oh, you heard it God. here. You heard it here first, people. This is how it happens. <laughs> this is how the uh, sauce is made here. Who needs brainstorming tip? sessions when we just fall ass backwards into shit like that? Holy like, oh, it's forty shit. days and forty nights. Oh no, never mind. That's Harrison Ford. Oh wait. <laughs> Yeah, Harrison Ford and Anne Heche is Six Days and Seven Nights. <laughs> oh, wow. Ha- have you seen that one? Which one? Six Days and Seven Nights? Yes, I have seen that. I have seen uh, the Harrison Ford film. All right, all right. So I haven't seen that one. Uh, so this trifecta is already perfect. Yeah, no, I'm down. I'm with you. <clears throat> but yeah, um, Rules of Attraction, a movie that, you know, not terribly long ago when we watched uh, Overnight for a previous episode of this show, the documentary about Troy Duffy who made the Boondock Saints. I went back and I rewatched the Boondock Saints and I hadn't seen it in a while and was surprised how kind of offensive and shitty and dude bro it was. Mm-hmm. And like I was, I think we talked about this on the, the oh, show a little bit, like how big of fans we were and then how it's, you feel like you can't kind of be a fan of it now <laughs> in the yeah. uh, age that we live in. I feel like cringy. it's, I feel like it's possible that you could say the same about Rules of Attraction, mm. but I haven't watched it in a while, so I'm not sure. But uh, wow. yeah, that's where my love of James Vanderbeek comes from, is Rules of Attraction as well. What? what? <laughs> wow. Learned something new every day here, Mills. <laughs> but yeah, Shannon Sossaman in like high school age Ryan's uh, top three. With Sandra crushes. Bullock? No. Oh. No. My appreciation for Sandy Bullock came later. Oh, okay, okay. No, it would have been Shannon Sossaman, Jordana Brewster, and Katie Holmes were my trifecta oh. back then. You had a type, Mills. I had a type. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Certainly. Them brunettes. All right, all right. <laughs> so who were your crushes in high school, Dax? Ooh. Celebrity crushes. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's kind of tough. I can't even think. Well, I didn't mm. think that would be that hard of a question. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to think back to, you know, my memory is. What was I, like, really digging? Uh, I think we talked. I always, I liked, uh, did we talk about that on Hackers episode? Because I liked Angelina Jolie for a while. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely into Angie as well, but. Yeah, that seems like a big one back then. Mm. I don't know. We'll have to table that one. (laughs) We'll get back to it later. I don't want too much dead air here. When we talk about six days, seven nights. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, anyway. Back, to, back to nights. Mm. 
I think I was the impetus behind this episode because I've long wanted to watch Flesh and Blood, which is a Paul Verhoeven film. Mm. And I am very much a fan of uh, Paul Verhoeven, especially the period of his career that was kicked off by this movie when he first came to start making films, English language films in the U.S. and for U.S. audiences. Mm. I think uh, that and A Knight's Tale immediately came to mind. And then I had a little trouble. It doesn't seem like it should be hard to come up with another like movie about knights and like medieval battles yeah. and stuff. But for some reason, I remember having an issue coming up with another one to add to the list. And then I think you threw Excalibur at me, which I had never seen. And I'd always kind of wanted to as well. So yeah, I don't, I was never even aware of flesh and blood. Like yeah. I know some, I guess I know more of Verhoeven's uh, American release stuff. Yeah. Robocop, you know, uh, well, this came out, Flesh and Blood came out like two years before RoboCop. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, he had a run there of yeah. RoboCop, Total, Total Recall, Recall, Basic Instinct, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man. And, you know, Showgirls, mm-hmm. notwithstanding, like a guilty pleasure, that's a fucking hell of a run. Honestly. Just the, just the three sci fi's of RoboCop. Total Recall and Starship Troopers. Like I, mean, I love those three movies. I don't know about you. I'm a big fan of Hollow Man, also a sci-fi mm. movie. Like throw that one in there. No, that's true. That's a good one. I'm fully I, down. And Basic Instinct is a great movie too. Never seen that. Yeah. It's one of those movies yeah. where when I finally I feel like that's a movie everyone always talked about. Obviously because of the the Sharon Stone interrogation yes, totally. scene. But like when I finally watched it, I was like, wow. For everybody talking about this the way they always have, it's way like sleazier than I ever thought, which I really <laughs> dug. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, I mean, Paul Verhoeven kind of makes big budget exploitation movies if you look at yeah. his filmography. Yes. Um, like RoboCop, a hundred percent could have been like some cheap, you know, Canon Films movie, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, five six years earlier or something like that. But then he gets like a budget and makes like a an actual quality film out of it. But then you know doesn't dumb down the violence and the no. you know the socio political subtext yeah. for mean, mainstream yeah, audiences at all. Hyper violent, satirical, like in the best ways. Yeah, which goes through all of his films, and we should just do a Paul Verhoeven special where we <laughs> watch oh, all okay. of his movies because I could <laughs> talk mean, about this guy. I mean. That was the easiest idea you ever came up with. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, why don't we go ahead uh, and get into our first film, which is not Flesh and Blood, and then we'll get no. there Get there in okay. a little while. We'll work our way up to your boy. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep on babbling about uh, Shannon Sossaman and mm. Paul Verhoeven <laughs> and never even get to Excalibur. <laughs> like, oh, what were we talking about? <laughs> so, first up on the docket, from 1981, we have Excalibur. <laughs> Swear faith to me, and you shall have mercy. I need battle lords such as you, and I will not swear faith to a squire. Never! Never! You're right. I'm not yet a knight. You, Irians, will knight me. There is night tonight. 
I can't offer you mercy. What's this? What's this? St. Michael and St. George, I give you the right to bear arms and the power to meet justice. That duty I will solemnly obey as knight and king. I never saw this. Rise, King Arthur. I am your humble knight, and I swear allegiance to the courage in your veins. So strong it is. Its source must be Uther Pendragon. I doubt you no more. Directed by John Borman, who also gave us Deliverance, The Exorcist II, The Heretic, and Zardoz, which is another movie I've never seen, but I really need to get around to. Zardoz, is that the one with Sean Connery? Yeah, in that ridiculous fucking tiny red outfit. Yeah, that leotard or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Oh man, I got. I'm writing down so many movies tonight. Chris. <laughs> Keep that list going, man. Czar does. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, this is one that I feel like has always been pretty well regarded. Mm-hmm. Never really knew a whole hell of a lot about it. Like going into this, couldn't have told you who was in it, even though it has a surprisingly stacked cast. But most of these people were kind of unknowns at the time. Yeah, I mean, going in. I mean, I, this must have come up during the dragon episode, but I, I've always liked knights in medieval tales and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure. Well, I, I wanted to say, before I watched this movie, I was sure I was like well-versed in King Arthur mythos, but apparently not after watching this movie. Well, see... I only know, like, the basics, the stuff that you kind of put together from, you know, like, the sword and the stone and shit like that. Right. Um, Like, when you're younger. But I don't know how much of a different version of the actual King Arthur mythos this is. I can say that this movie is an adaptation of a book called, I think it's, like, the Mort do Arthur or something like that. Like the death of Arthur, I believe is mm-hmm. what it translates to. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is like a hundred percent classic Arthur lore, or if this is somebody's like even more fictionalized take on it or what. Right. Cause there's so much stuff in this movie that I'd never heard. Yeah. An totally. inkling of before. I did remind me about like, you know, as I'm about to watch it, like things start coming back, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, uh, Lancelot, he's part of all this." <laughs> yeah, and that it made me think because then there's like a love triangle, which I believe must be accurate to some point because that's popped up in other movies. I'm trying to think that Sean Connery one where he's King Arthur. Mm-hmm. Um, the name escapes me, but I'm pretty sure that covers the uh, love triangle. See, I don't, I've never seen Angle. that movie. I'm peripherally aware of it, but first night maybe. Does that yeah, sound right? from the nineties, I think. Yeah. All right, I've got to write that down too. First night. <laughs> but yeah, it's but, funny uh, to think that uh, 
Like, I guess Sean Connery was considered for this film as King Arthur at some point, but it didn't happen. Um, mm. But it's interesting, like, so I read, there's a ton of trivia out there about this movie, which I feel like the more trivia is on, like, the IMDb trivia page, then the more popular that means the movie is, because everybody's got shit to say about it. Mm-hmm. And there is just a mile of information about this on there, you know, alleged information, because you can't ever trust that shit but 100%, no. but... According to somebody's trivia on there, allegedly John Borman wanted to cast a lot of unknowns because he wanted it to be like more about the characters than the actors. Yeah. So it's funny to think like one of the guys I never heard of before, uh, Nigel Terry, is King Arthur. And mm-hmm. another guy who I couldn't have told you who the fuck he was is uh, the dude who plays Merlin, Nickel Williamson. Apparently he was like a big name at the time and everybody like super praised his performance in this. His name's Nickel? N-I-C-O-L. I guess that's Nickel. Nicole, maybe? I'm not (laughs) sure. I I like Nickel, so I'm going. (laughs) But, uh, you know, other people in the cast, you've got Helen Mirren, Mm -hmm. Patrick Stewart, Liam Neeson, Gabriel Byrne. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was Liam Neeson and Gabriel Byrne, both of their f- third things that they were ever in. Yeah, so I didn't know. I didn't, like, look ahead to see who was in these or anything. Mm-hmm. So Helen Mirren didn't even realize that till the credits r- ran at the end. Oh, really? You didn't recognize yeah. her? No. It just oh. went right over my head completely. It was it was kind of great because, you know, kind Liam Neeson just kind of shows up. Well, maybe he's in the background throughout the first part, but when he funny like speaks, and then I mm-hmm. saw him, I went, well, "Wait!" I was like, "That's Liam Neeson." Yeah, I don't really think it's until about the time that the round table is formed that he comes into it. But yeah. I definitely saw him in a shot and thought, "Is that look like Liam Neeson?" Before like I actually got a good look at him. <laughs> yeah, no, Sa- that's good. Same thing with uh, Patrick Stewart. He was probably on screen for a good five minutes before I was like, that guy looks a lot like Patrick Stewart, Mm -hmm. and then realized it was him. And Gabriel Byrne is the one for me who, he plays Arthur's father in the beginning, and so he's not in the movie a ton, but I completely wouldn't have known that he was in it until I saw the credits. I was like pretty, I like Patrick Stewart. I was pretty pumped to see him. If you would have asked me before watching this, I would have said, uh, Patrick Stewart like lived in a void and then just showed up out of nowhere and got on to Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> yeah. No clue that he had done movies beforehand. I'm so. thinking he was probably one of these guys who did like a lot of stage acting before he got into film mm-hmm. and television. Would be my mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, which is probably how someone could just come out of the blue and be like a noteworthy performer if you're only familiar right. with film and television. Because he, he's looked basically the same age forever. Yeah. And he doesn't necessarily, he still looks that, but he just has a beard in this. But mm-hmm. he's, he's certainly no spring chicken in this either. Yeah, I think it's the fact that he's always been bald. So there's never been like graying of hair or thinning of hair. It's just mm-hmm. like Vin bald. Diesel will probably be the same way. Like mm-hmm. he'll probably look pretty much the same until he's like 70. That's a good point. If he makes it that long. <laughs> oh, Hot take. (laughs) But uh, yeah, a hell of a cast. The movie itself, I read a quote about the film from Roger Ebert, which I think describes it extremely well. Mm -hmm. He called it both a wondrous vision and a mess. Okay. (laughs) 
I'm glad you said that because at some point after watching it, I read like some of that stuff and I, I it, it it stuck out to me. I was like, oh, someone referred to that movie as messy, and that's how mm-hmm. I feel about it too. So for yeah, sure. So originally the first cut of the movie was three hours long. So they cut a good hour out of this thing. Uh, what all they cut, I don't know. Well, it's still it's still two hours and twenty minutes long. So it's yeah. still long as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can say that in the be- like I was looking forward to watching this because it is one of those things like it's got that awesome Bob Peak movie poster which always mm-hmm. sticks out and just something that I'd always kind of been curious to see. And the first like 20 minutes or so it's, it dumps you right into plot and it's just on its fucking way. It's yeah. like you meet King Arthur, he's fighting someone and then they come to an agreement. And then that night when they're partying about the fact that they came to an agreement, he like falls in love with uh, his rival's, you know, wife, and yeah. then he well, it's wants not even Arthur; and... it's his dad. Yeah, right, 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 right. right. King Arthur's dad, um, Gabriel Byrne, mm-hmm. and then they like immediately it cuts from like, "Hey, I want your wife." To now they're having a war, and then Merlin is disguising him as uh, his rival so that he can have sex with the woman, and then it cuts like right from them having sex to nine months later they're having the kid, and then the yeah. Merlin takes the kid off, and then it cuts to the future when the kid is like now a young man, and now you have King Arthur. And I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm just like, Jesus fucking Christ, like, slow yeah. down here. What is right. happening? I don't know who any of these people are. Mm-hmm. And uh, a- that is kind of the pace of the entire film. Less of a narrative. It feels more like just a montage, like the greatest to- hits to- of King Arthur's life. I couldn't agree more. This just feels like scenes, like, jam-packed together, because you're completely right. This is the first one I watched. And Same here. Within 20 minutes, I thought I was suffocating. I was like, what is going on? I was <laughs> yeah. like, what? What is happening? And then because it's just like the style, and I don't know if it's the accents or just the sound, but I was like, because Arthur's dad's name is like Uther, mm-hmm. which sounds like Arthur. So I spent a long time <laughs> in the beginning like, damn, what kind of King Arthur story is this? Yeah. Because his dad's like a horrible bastard. Yeah, like he. But I spent wants the entire s- movie thinking that was him. Oh, really? <laughs> well, the entire like part until the beginning. You know, yeah, King Arthur's born. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm watching it and thinking like, oh, Merlin is a good guy and all this. But like one of the first things you see him do is like disguise with magic, uh, King Arthur's dad to look like his rival so that he can. Mm-hmm. rape his rival's yeah. wife and impregnate her yeah and then merlin is like okay but the like you have to do something for me like i want your yeah. firstborn or whatever and then when the yeah. kid is born merlin comes and fucking takes the kid away a, and like i'm just bit. sitting there thinking like is merlin the bad guy in this movie yeah and because it, it threw me off too because merlin's already old so i was like oh i guess that is like king arthur i was like i don't know where this story is going but then he just I think they write it away that he just is immortal or something. Cause he... Yeah, definitely. He's like it, something about the magic is yeah. like he doesn't age. Uh-huh. Um, just I, I. But then like Morgana, um, Helen Mirren's character, late late in the movie when she has like magical powers too, it's revealed that she's been using magic to keep herself looking young uh-huh. and beautiful. I don't know if there's some form of the same thing happening with Merlin, but uh, mm. when it gets to Arthur as young man, you know, sword in the stone and all that, it levels out a little bit, but it still feels like 
it, there's, I don't know. There's just no real clear narrative that you're following. It's just like event cut some random yeah. amount of time to another noteworthy event, then cut like there's yeah. the part where Arthur, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened to him, but he gets all like weak and sickly and uh, he tells the round table to go look for the, uh, the grail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like I didn't know how movie. long they were out looking. And then when Percival is like one of the last two or three round table nights left, he mentions that it's been 10 years he's been yeah. searching. And I'm like, holy shit. Just. And then, then when like Arthur's like son that happens too, and like he, he like grows old a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I wasn't sure if he was like aging fast or time is progressing. I was like, I'm not sure what's going on with this movie because like his mom is a witch and you know the whole thing. But mm-hmm. then you see Arthur and he's all gray haired, and I was like, oh okay. Like you know what it felt like as I was watching it, especially as it got towards the end, it felt like watching Shogun Assassin which is just a movie made out of Two Lone Wolf movies. and Cub. Yeah. yeah. So it just, it felt like that because there's just so much jam packed in this thing. It just made me think of keeping in mind that uh, I've never read the Bible and I'm not a religious person and I don't know a lot about it. <laughs> it just made me think of like when I've seen or heard people in movies and TV talking about the Bible and they just say like, and Joseph begat this person and that person begat that person. That's kind of what this feels like. It's just like, it's not so much telling a narrative as just like, here's what happened to this person. And then here's the next most noteworthy thing in their life. (laughs) Yeah. Like the connective tissue isn't there. Like it should be to like tell a compelling story. Yeah. It almost felt like a mini series or something. I don't know. Yeah. No, it just felt like a, a <laughs> yeah, it felt like a mini series chopped up into two and a half hours and they still didn't have enough time to tell you everything. Yeah. You know, so it had a weird feeling to it. I got used to it eventually after like an hour when I was like, okay, that this is just what this movie is, but it still caught me off guard here and there when oh. it's like, oh, 10 years passed. And yeah, like you're talking about with uh, Arthur's son who the first time you see him, he's like a young kid and he's wearing that golden armor with the creepy helmet. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it just cuts to another scene and he's now like taller than Helen Mirren. Right, exactly. Well, just because you mentioned that creepy gold armor, I actually did like that. And the armor and throughout the whole thing is kind of impressive. Yeah. The only, uh, it's a bit of a preamble, but the whole, uh, like the, the only way this movie was ever on my radar is, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but like one of my favorite humans of uh, who's a celebrity is Adam Savage, one of the mm-hmm. hosts from Mythbusters. I know that about you. So I always watch, like I watch most of his YouTube videos and he's always like building stuff or going movie props, yada, yada, yada. But he had like a series where he went... I think to England and worked with the guy who made the armor for Excalibur mm-hmm. and made his own suit of armor to mm-hmm. match. So like kind of before that, it was, I guess I would have guessed Excalibur was a movie, but I couldn't ever like, you know, attach anything to it. Mm-hmm. So once I actually was, saw the movie, I was kind of pumped because I was like, oh, all this armor is pretty crazy. Like there's, you know, at any given time, there's 50 sets of 
full armor yeah. being made for this movie. Yeah, it seems really small scale whenever there's like a battle scene or something, because unlike something like Lord of the Rings, which we're used to nowadays, the battle will be like 20 people versus 20 people because mm-hmm. it's just expensive to have all that armor and shit, especially back in the early 80s. Right. But, you know, that's kind of, you know, we've talked about how the movie is a mess. The other part of Roger Ebert's quote is it's a wondrous vision. And mm-hmm. I would agree that, like, once you get into the movie, there's a lot of visual stuff that I really like. Yeah. All of the outdoor scenes are, like, gorgeous, just all the forest stuff. I read a bit of trivia saying that um, the entire production was basically plagued by rain, which meant that uh, all of the foliage and the plants were, like, extra thick and, like, green, which just made it look Mm. like a magical kind of place, and everything was always, like, damp. Mm-hmm. And in addition, I just love the shit that they did. Like any time, like Excalibur, the sword, it's not like designed to the nines. Like I feel like it would be nowadays yeah, in a movie true. where it's not like yeah. super recognizable. But any time that sword is drawn and the camera is focused on it, they are always hitting it off camera with a green light <laughs> so yeah. that it doesn't look like it's glowing. Like it doesn't uh-huh. look like Sting from Lord of the Rings that glows blue when orcs <laughs> right. are around like blue light emanating from inside, but there's always a green reflection on the sword. And that just gives it this feeling of like, there's something special about it, which was really cool. Yeah. And the same thing with the knights to make them seem like even more like, you know, important and ethereal and classic or whatever. uh, They were always like scrubbing down the armor to make it very reflective and then hitting with lights from off camera. So there's like light glinting from nowhere. Like it's obviously not coming, especially when they're indoors because it's all like candle lighting and everything. It's not being lit naturally within the world by anything. It's just like this kind of sci-fi fantasy glow from nowhere, which looks really cool. Yeah, it fe- almost feels like a like a stage play kind of some of the those aspects of it, you know? Like mm-hmm. it's not it's not played for like a like a realistic Yeah, it's King just Arthur movie giving like a vibe and a feeling of like these guys should feel like these important classical figures, so we're going to mm-hmm. make them shine at you. Yeah. And it kind of matches with the uh the kind of that Bob Peak poster design that I'm talking about, uh, because uh, one of the things that is recognizable in a lot of his posters for like Superman the movie and like the Star Trek films is he always had that airbrush look with just like fucking crazy light glints and mm-hmm. off of everything. All of his posters look very shiny and chrome, kind of. Oh, yeah. And th- I wonder how much of that comes from him doing the poster for this movie early on. Mm. but that's a good point it does look very cool the battle scenes the first battle scene when they're storming the castle before uh when arthur's father wants to fuck his Mm -hmm. rival's lady Mm -hmm. that one looked pretty lame it's just like down shots on like eight people on a beach with one slingshot or whatever right trebuchet but then later in the movie there's battle scenes that are like out on a field somewhere with like a ton of fog. So it gives the impression that there's probably a lot of people. I think those work better. I think they work better. A problem I had throughout the whole movie was I feel like 
not a single like sword expert was hired for this movie. Because <laughs> yeah. there's, there's like not not one shot of like solid sword fighting at all mm-hmm. throughout the entire thing. It's a lot of just like guys swinging around and like smashing a sword against another guy's back. You know, yeah. Like, it's constant. You're, you're never really seeing people impaled or sliced. No. It's just like. My sword made contact with your armor, so you fall down now. There's not, like, any, like, volley of, like, swords hitting back and forth or anything. Yeah. I mean, you'll get plenty of that if that's what you want from flesh and blood (laughs) coming up. (laughs) So that movie is, like, the antithesis of that one or of this one in, uh, in this context, but... Yeah, this definitely had more of like an impressionistic, old-timey feel of like, we're giving you the idea that a battle is happening, but we're not really right. trying to make it seem like a battle. Right, right. This is like the the fantasy novel version, for sure. Yeah. Uh, speaking of fantasy novel, I read in a couple different places that apparently John Borman had wanted to do a movie based around Merlin uh, since like the 60s, but then he could never get it off the ground and he pitched it to the studio that ended up making Excalibur and they didn't want to do it, but then they sold him on doing an adaptation of Lord of the Rings instead. And so a lot of the armor and the weapons and one or two of the sets in Excalibur were actually made for a live action Lord of the Rings movie in the early eighties that never happened. And then that ended up falling through and the studio fell back on like, okay, you can make your Merlin movie. And so there was actually one set. I don't remember which one it is, but uh, in the trivia on both Wikipedia and IMDb that I saw talking about how it was meant to be like the the Rivendell Council when the Fellowship is formed in uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. And I just think that's really fucking cool that we almost got a live action Lord of the Rings. And imagine a Lord of the Rings movie that looked like this from this era. How cool that would have been. Wow. So different. Yeah. That would have been something. Wow. Uh, Budget for this movie, 11 million, Mm -hmm. which I don't have a real good handle on whether that was a lot at the time, but I feel like it probably was. I think I think so. And a box office 35, which, again, probably pretty darn good for the time. Yeah, I'd say so. And as I mentioned earlier, this movie has, like, a real real staying power because, like, people still seem to really love and adore this movie. Totally. All told, I did enjoy it. Would it have been nice if it felt like it was following a character and, like, their arc instead of just... It felt like you were standing on the outside looking in at a story, not really being mm-hmm. felt feeling like you're part of it. But, right, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was at least interesting. And they covered a fucking lot of ground. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it kind of depends on your your mileage may vary if it's covering too much ground or not. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there was there there's things to, to like for sure. It's just tough to get like emotionally invested with anybody in this movie because so rarely is it like, you know, a slowed down conversation with like close up, uh, mm-hmm. wide shot, you know, back and forth between two people talking and feeling emotions because it's just whatever information you need to get on to the next sequence. Right, right. Yeah, I agree completely. But yeah, still pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shall we move on? 
Uh, yeah, one one last thing that I'll say first is uh, this movie was co-written by John Borman and a guy named Rospo Pallenberg. <laughs> I love it. Who also wrote uh, Exorcist to the Heretic, which John Borman directed. And uh, Rospo has directed one film, and Ooh, that I'm film ready. was Cutting Class, the uh, high school slasher movie starring Brad Pitt. <laughs> wow. Which uh, Vinegar Syndrome released not too long ago, so I I watched <laughs> within the last year, uh-huh. and uh, boy is that movie special. <laughs> uh, that's a good way of putting it. I've yeah. never seen it, but I can imagine it's special. Yeah, so bad that Brad Pitt for years apparently like kept that movie from getting a real release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Vinegar Syndrome found their way around it and put it out uh, not too it. long ago. So there you go, All good right. old Rospo. <laughs> Thanks, Rosbo. <laughs> All right. Next up, a film we've already talked quite a bit about, Flesh and Blood from 1985. Are you looking for something? I read a book in the convent library about love and black magic. There was a passage I found fascinating. What was it about? A magic root, mandrake grows in a place like this. If a man and a woman eat of it, they will love each other forever. Did it also say why you have to dig in this particular spot? The nuns linked out that passage very carefully. When a man is hanged, he comes and his semen spills to the ground. That's where your mandrake sprouts. Explains why the passage was inked out. There. What did I tell you? Mandrake. Here. Happy. Eat it and we'll love each other forever. Rubbish. Have you ever tried it? Of course not. Any scholar will tell you it's nonsense. You want to investigate nature. I thought real scientists didn't believe in hearsay. That they had to investigate everything for themselves. Well, I'll eat it. I like to try things out for myself. This one... I don't even know how to categorize this movie. I would say anyone that thinks to themselves... What would a medieval Paul Verhoeven movie be like? <laughs> it is this movie. And it is called Flesh and Blood. <laughs> yeah. And there's b- both of those in spades. There's a lot of flesh. Yeah. Especially the flesh of Jennifer Jason Lee. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a surprise. I mean, again, I didn't know. I didn't look at anything before watching this one. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh. I was like, oh, Rucker Howard in like a weird head wrap. <laughs> I was like, is that Jennifer Jason Lee? I was like, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I knew going in that Rudger Hauer was in this, but I didn't know anybody else. And uh, your boy Bruno Kirby Mills. I know you love him. Bruno Kirby. I'm not super familiar with him. I know the name. Should I know him from something? Uh, I know him from Basketball Diaries. I've never Leonardo seen that. DiCaprio movie. Oh, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> uh, 
He's always, he's been in a, quite a few things. He's kind of, not quite one of the that guy actor, but see more of that guy actor for me from this movie is Brian James. Brian spelled B R I O N. Oh boy. He has been in Blade Runner, Enemy Mine, Red Heat, Tango oh, and Cash, The Fifth yeah. Element. Yeah, he he definitely is. Kind of tall, skinny guy with a thin face and kind of a big nose. Oh yeah. I feel I feel like his mate. Well, maybe most People know him from Blade Runner? Maybe. Probably Blade Runner. But he's just got one of those recognizable faces. I always love seeing him pop up and stuff. Yeah, like something you would never expect to be an actor because he looks like a creature. The other person in this who has put in a very noteworthy performance from another film, I didn't recognize him at all in this. And I wonder if it's because he was constantly dressed in like a ton of layers and he looked a lot bigger than I think he actually is Ronald Lacey as the Cardinal, like the, the crazy dude who's always giving the prophecies about Mm. where St. Martin is telling them to go. He is the creepy Nazi with the glasses in Raiders of the Lost Ark who gets his face melted. Oh, no way. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't recognize him the whole movie. And then I read that after the fact and I'm like, I can totally see it now. Not even close. Yeah. He looks like a completely different person. Dude, he's got the best scream in all of movie history. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to watch him die. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Wow. All in right, that movie right. and in this, when he the statue falls and he gets a yeah. sword through the yeah. neck. And he's just like looking at it. He's staring at that sword falling. <laughs> and I was like, oh, here comes a Verhoeven, a Verhoeven death. Sure enough. Yeah. So let's just talk about Paul Verhoeven and violence for a minute. Yes. I think, I mean, he's made some supremely entertaining movies between RoboCop, Total Recall, uh, Starship Troopers, you know, the ones we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Also likes to do the sleaze thing because there's like a ton of nudity in this and, you know, he's made Basic Instinct and Showgirls and, mm-hmm. you know, he's not afraid to put nudity and sex in his movies. No. Which It's all over Hollow Man too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the many movies in which you can see Kevin's bacon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> now see now we have to name an episode that Kevin's Bacon. Oh God! Well, there are a lot of movies that show it, so write it down. <laughs> we might not be there yet. But, all right, carry on. But you know, all things that I think, especially in the '90s, with Basic Instinct being a prime example of this, there was like a real push in the mid '90s. I feel, especially with stuff like HBO original films and things, for just that kind of like dark sexy uh, what's even the word for it like just like sexy sultry thrillers you know um and i think that that shit sells and that's smart on his behalf but then on the other side of things he puts in just the crazy over the top violence which sometimes is really fun to watch like homeboy who's been coated in toxic slime and then yeah. just gets pulped by the car at the end of RoboCop mm-hmm. or the dude who gets obliterated by gunfire from Ed 209 right. in that movie. Or even like, I know we talked about this recent, well, not too long ago about like the, I never knew that there was like unrated footage from RoboCop mm-hmm. that's even more violent. Yeah. Yeah. Like stuff like that, which people should search out. Cause it's, 
it's pretty good. Yeah, it's but. not hard to find on uh, on DVD or Blu-ray, and I assume that the new edition of RoboCop that's coming out, or by the time you're hearing this, has come out from Arrow Video, probably mm-hmm. has it uh, that version on there as well. Yeah. But also, he knows how to use it just to be like really gross and like intensify the feelings mm-hmm. that you should get from like a death scene in certain situations. And this movie, like I was watching it and it kind of, it jumps around a lot, but not in the same way that Excalibur does. Like that movie, the plot jumps around a lot. This movie, it's just like from, from segment to segment, I never knew where it was going, where we were going to settle, what the point of it was. Like I kept waiting for a hero or like a main villain to come out of it. But even like the innocent good guy isn't like a lead character in this. No. And you would think that the Jennifer Jason Lee character would be kind of the one that you are rooting for and following, but she's very even unpredictable when it comes Mm -hmm. to who she's with and what her motivations are at any given time. Millsy, I got to the end of the movie and I wasn't even sure if she was evil or not. Yeah. I love the moment because the whole movie she's wishy-washy like she's this like prissy rich girl who seemingly should want to be with the the good guy prince in the movie Mm -hmm. who isn't even really a main character but then she gets like swept up in the lives of these you know rebel almost like like pirate mercenaries pirates yeah (laughs) or something who are just going around doing whatever the hell they feel like and uh it's so back and forth. Like it seems like she's happy to be with Rutger Hauer and she's accepted this new life. And then like, I was, I couldn't figure out why she threw the necklace down to the, the good guy uh, towards Mm -hmm. the end when she's standing up on the castle wall and he comes to confront them. But Mm -hmm. then I love the part at the end where uh, Steven, the good guy character is chained up in the castle and he throws the plague infested piece of Mm. meat (laughs) into the well. And he, Mm -hmm. she sees him do it and he's like, you have to choose now. Like then you can tell them or not, like it's them or me. I love that moment. And it hadn't really occurred to me until then how unreliable and wishy-washy she was as a character. Yeah. Uh, And and she still was because she still didn't, necessarily deliver on that either no yeah um she let some of those people die but then (laughs) stopped them before redger howard could drink the plague water but then she like she saves redger howard and then 12 minutes later she's smashing him with a wine bottle yeah because he tried to fucking choke her out (laughs) right but all of that just goes to the point that uh, paul verhoeven had when he made this Mm -hmm. movie and it's something that i really appreciate coming full circle back to what i was talking about I love I like I love all kinds of movies like mainstream action films that are you know more about just like the spectacle than the actual violence and I like a lot of movies that are extremely violent and you would not call mainstream at all like I like to get all levels of it I love the way that Paul Verhoeven manages to mix the two a lot of the time mm-hmm. but a uh, thing that I read from him And the reason it's in stark contrast to Excalibur, which is not focused on the actual literal violence for the most part at all, is that Paul Verhoeven said that he wanted to make a movie that actually felt 
like it was truly representing like the conditions and the mindset of people mm-hmm. in the period when this takes place. Like, was it like the 1500s? 1501 yeah, like or something? 1501. Yeah. And just like the horrible conditions and the fact that you couldn't trust anybody and every, every just nobody had set in stone lives unless you were royalty back then the way that a lot of people do now like people find a station in life and they typically stay there for the most part and there are people who strive to for bigger and better things and there's people who like fall to lower places but for the most part it feels like everybody's kind of set in a kind of life largely in this day and Mm -hmm. age and -hmm. back then like from day to day from minute to minute you didn't know what was going to happen and the way that uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character just kind of rolls with the punches is really fascinating because I did not yeah. expect her character to go that way no. when we first meet her. Yeah, well, especially because you first meet her and then I guess in a very Verhoeven way, she's got this guy she just met five minutes ago and they're out in a field underneath some hanging corpses <laughs> digging up mandrakes, <laughs> Yeah, which is a thing apparently that people eat. To uh, fall in love. Apparently, yeah. I said, what is going on in this movie? And even when you first meet her, like when you first, first meet her, uh, and she's talking to like her servant or handmaiden or whatever mm-hmm. about like, you know, she's lived in a convent and she's a virgin and she's now going off to marry this guy she's never met and she wants to know what sex is like. And so right. she asks her, you know, servant girl or whatever who she seems very friendly with. To, like, show her, which I didn't realize at first meant she wanted to watch her have sex with some other guy. Same here. But then when the servant girl says that she doesn't want to, Agnes, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character, gets, like, super pissed and, like, orders her to go have sex so she can watch. And it's, like, immediately I was like, oh, that's a – I wasn't expecting that. And then she goes and watches them for a minute and then, like, flips out on them. Yeah. And, like, whips – her whips her yeah i mean she's crazy Mills. i don't know yeah just just i love that like unpredictability from a paul verhoeven movie yeah i feel like oftentimes you never know where it's gonna go there's always a surprise around the corner Mm -hmm. definitely in this movie for sure Millsy, let me ask you a question Mm -hmm. maybe i'm not as much i I wouldn't consider myself a history buff were you surprised to see uh the year 1501 that there was gunpowder and and explosions yeah well, yeah, I mean, this episode is, you know, all knights, and you think about knights have swords. Yeah. And obviously, yes, there was, like, a crossover time when gunpowder was invented. I am so. I'm not enough of a history buff to know any of that shit, like, with any reasonable accuracy. Mm-hmm. But for sure, this was the third one I watched, and when it started, it literally opens on, like, a battle where these guys are, like, performing a siege on a castle and there's explosions and shit like the beginning of saving private Ryan all over the beaches is Normandy. Oh yeah. And I'm thinking to myself like, Ooh, did I like misread this? And it's not actually like a, like a <laughs> Knights in <laughs> yes. armor movie. Like, yeah. Is this some kind of weird sci-fi alternate history or something? Uh-huh. But that just shows my ignorance to actual yeah. historical same, events. Same here. So I guess. But I thought that was an interesting take, too, because it adds a little extra element. Like with the the bomb that the that Stephen, the, the son of the king, invented, that was mm-hmm. like a it was almost like a wheelbarrow that blows up. Yeah, totally. Pretty cool. 
And while I buy that, I don't really buy at all that little contraption they build at the end that's almost like a... Siege tower? Is that what it was? Yeah, the thing... Is that what you call it? That's what you call it, the uh, thing that looks like a firefighter's uh, ladder. Yeah. The enclosed thing, yeah. That... I mean, is that a real thing? Because that looked incredibly fake. And maybe it was just the way that it was presented. Well, I think, like, a siege, the only thing I've ever seen in a siege tower is, like, a a tower that, like, they can roll up to a castle. Yeah. Not one that can, like, unfold like a transformer. Yeah, this one, like, things, there's giant gears spinning and things are moving on their own. And, like, as that ladder is extending up to the castle... Like, mm-hmm. every time it cut to a new angle, I was like, there's no way this thing gets longer. How long is this fucking thing supposed <laughs> right. to be? Right. It went above the castle, like and the then, highest steeple. Yeah. All I could think as they're climbing it is, like, I'm taken out of the movie for a moment going, like, there's no way that that thing could handle anybody's weight because it's right. so fucking long and it's not right. leaning on anything. Like, right. stupid, I know, but. I was like, well, then you were glad that they blew it up and a bunch of bodies fell out of it. I did think that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's our boy Verhoeven, Millsy. Yeah. Bringing it back around. But yeah, just uh, if you want violent, bloody death and mm-hmm. suffering, this is the movie for you. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be like kind of like out of nowhere. Like you, there'll be like some fighting going on and then you'll be like, oh yeah, this is Verhoeven movie because that guy's arm just got chopped off out of nowhere. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the earliest instances of sudden shocking violence for me was, so the movie opens on... Uh, Rudger Hauer and his band of buddies, including the aforementioned Brian James and Bruno Kirby, uh, they're like mercenaries for hire, and this king has hired them to help him take back his like city, his you know enclosed castle or whatever. And uh, he promises them all that they can loot the rich of the city for 24 hours after they get inside. As soon as they've won the battle, he changes his mind. And, like, forces them all to disperse and leave their weapons and everything behind. And then the next scene, it's, like, a small group of these mercenaries, including Rudger Hauer. And they're all kind of standing around trying to decide what to do with one another. And they just randomly in the mud find this statue of St. Michael. Mm-hmm. And the cardinal, like, the crazy religious character, is talking about how they have to, like... It's a sign from God, and they have to follow the statue and all this stuff. And one guy's just like, I'm not going to do that. That's a stupid idea. Cardinal, the religious man, just fucking stabs him through the gut. <laughs> yeah. And he falls into like a pu- like a puddle of mud. And I'm just uh-huh. like, what the fuck? Yeah. But that is like a good descriptor for the entire film. You just never know who's going to die and at whose hand. Mm-hmm. No one's safe, Mills. Yeah. But I lo- Jason I- Lee has like flesh-colored eyebrows. <laughs> yeah but uh yeah i like that i like that unpredictability about it i love the extremes that uh paul verhoven goes to and i understand that there are people out there who are really affected by ultra violence or you know gore effects and things in movies i i understand that but from my point of view like I mean, it's not it's not necessary in every movie, but especially when you're watching a Paul Verhoeven movie, just like the more that shit there is, the better, because it's just something that you don't get in every movie. Right. And um, yeah, totally. I think that's something I really appreciate about a a Paul Verhoeven film. Like, 
uh, early on in Total Recall when Arnold fights like those four dudes right at the beginning of the film in the stairwell. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no reason <laughs> that scene has to be as fucking brutal as it is. <laughs> right. But, I mean, he is just crushing these guys' bones in that fight scene. Oh, yeah. And I fucking love it because you don't see that everywhere. And I find I find that shit entertaining in, in a certain light. Mm-hmm. And in Paul Verhoeven's movies, that is that light. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Violence is the light. Yeah, just the fact that, like, there's so many movies that you watch where, you know, there's, it's like a thriller and there's, like, the requisite sex scene where it's like, okay, any minute now the the lead female character is going to take her top off and then they're going to lay in bed together and it's going to pan up to the window as the curtains are, like, lightly flowing in the breeze and, like, a saxophone plays. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is what you're used to seeing in every movie. Like, it's some kind of obligation. But... Instead, Paul Verhoeven just has characters fucking naked all the time. Do you know when you described that scene just now that you basically described the worst part of number 23 where Jim Carrey's playing the saxophone while the, the, <laughs> the drapes are blowing through the window? <laughs> that did not occur to me, no. <laughs> the one that I always think of for whatever reason, because it's the epitome of this to me, it, it was in a lot of like 80s action movies. There was always that scene where like the 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 female character is getting dragged around in the action she doesn't want to, any part of by uh, the male character. And then eventually they would come to some kind of weird understanding and fuck. And then the movie, the, you, the, okay, that's the signal for the third act to start. Um, the one that always jumps to mind for me is the Terminator. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I understand that Sarah Connor and uh, Kyle Reese have to procreate in order for John Connor to then be born in the future, even though that time loop shit doesn't make any sense. But like, that's just the epitome for me for some reason. That's the one that always sticks in my head when they're in that hotel and he's making the pipe bombs and he's telling Mm -hmm. her about the future. And then it's like for the first time she sympathizes with him and then it's like, Oh, there's a Linda yeah. Hamilton titty. Now the movie yeah. can officially the, end, you know. <laughs> the the music changes. And, mm-hmm. yeah. But that's the thing is like what you expect to happen is not what Paul Verhoeven's going to give you. No. So like when it's time for uh, the, the two leads in this movie to have sex for the first time, it's literally the rape of a virgin and mm. poor Jennifer Jason Lee is being held by a bunch of other people. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty brutal. Many of them women and is yeah. being raped by Rudger Hauer. And then she, in the middle of it, takes the power away from him and starts like telling him that she likes it. And then everyone's laughing at Rudger Hauer and like, you're not raping her. She's raping you now. And it's just like, I didn't see that coming. Uh, I don't necessarily condone what's happening, but fuck if Paul Verhoeven isn't afraid to just zig when you think he's going to zag. Well, yeah, I'd say that that scene counts towards that for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I I enjoyed this one a lot. Uh, It always keeps you on your toes, even just from a story standpoint. Like I said earlier, like from scene to scene, I had no idea where it was going to go. Like when they find that castle and they're like, we need to live in that castle. I had no idea that's where it was going to end. Like it had been so nomadic of a film. That yeah. I they could have you know gone to ten other locations before it ended for all I knew. Yeah, totally. I agree completely. 
This one's shot out of a cannon. Yeah. It's just chaos and violence and... Uh, flesh and blood. <laughs> flesh and blood. It's the perfect title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently did very poorly in the box office, uh, potentially because... It's funny, I read that... So, uh, Paul Verhoeven had made a lot of movies in his home country, and then he started having difficulty with, like, the Dutch film board or something and couldn't get the amount of money that he wanted to make his movies, I think because of like his violence and his, like the tones of his films. So he decided to try getting backing for something outside, like in Hollywood. And so Orion pictures gave him money to make this movie. And then he learned very quickly that, uh, all audiences are turned off by this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. for the most part, because I think he was still living in his home country. Uh, when this movie came out and I read that after it was released and did poorly, he decided he had to move to America so he could get a better understanding of what American audiences were like and what they wanted. Hmm. And then he made RoboCop, which is a fucking classic. So yeah, I mean a a classic certified classic. Yeah. His plan worked, but uh, budget on this was 6.5 million and uh, box office, according to what I read was only about a hundred grand. Because the movie, I guess the studio was, there was like a lot of issue with like the international crew and everybody wanted to take the movie in a different direction. And people were unsure of Paul Verhoeven because he decided to not storyboard the film so that he could just be more like free and off the cuff when he was filming it. And uh, so the studio was not sure about the viability of the film. So instead of giving it just a wide release, they opened it limited release on the East and West Coasts, and it underperformed so much in the limited release that it apparently just like went straight to HBO the next year or something instead oh, of wow. having like a full theatrical release. Mm. But wow, that's quite the story on this one. Yeah, a couple of little fun trivia tidbits. Uh, the the co-writer of this movie, I I'm gonna butcher his last name. Gerard Soderman, maybe. Mm. This was the eighth of nine collaborations between him and Paul Verhoeven. They used to work together all the time. And after this, they didn't work together again until after his American period, Paul Verhoeven left the U.S. again, and then they made one more movie, Black Book, which I have not seen. Oh, okay. They write that one down. (laughs) Uh, this was Rudger Hauer's fifth collaboration with Paul Verhoeven. And uh, apparently because of the like winging it kind of shooting style for this movie, they had so many arguments and disputes on set that they never worked together again after this. Huh. Okay. Among the other actresses who were up for the role of Agnes, the part that went to Jennifer Jason Lee, was Rebecca De Mornay who was passed over because uh, if chosen for the film, she was demanding that her boyfriend, Tom Cruise, be cast in the role of Steven, the good guy. Oh, and yeah. I guess Paul, Hover- Ber- Paul Verhoeven did not want Tom Cruise in the movie because he wow. just thought it would be wrong. Huh. Kentaro Mira, I thought this was fascinating, and it makes a lot of sense after seeing this movie and how violent it is in the time period. Uh, Kentaro Mira was heavily influenced by this movie when he created his manga, uh, Berserk. Okay. And based the character of Guts on, uh, Rudger Hauer's character in this, which I find fascinating because I, 
I haven't read a lot of the manga, but I love the anime that's based on the Berserk manga. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Uh, it's extremely violent and it's medieval. <laughs> oh, all right then. And uh, the one other thing that surprised me, I didn't take notice of it while I was watching the film, but when I was like looking up the cast after the fact, the tiny part that we talked about earlier of Agnes's like servant girl in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Do you know who that was? No clue. That was Nancy Cartwright. Does that name ring a bell? Nancy Cartwright from The Simpsons? Yes, the voice of Bart no Simpson. No way. That was her being forced to have sex so that J- uh, Jennifer Jason Lee could what? watch in the beginning Jeez. of the movie. Huh. Which blew my fucking mind <laughs> when I saw that. Wow. And that is uh, two for two so far Simpsons voice actors who have been oh. in movies we've watched. Yeah. Because if right. you'll remember, Yardley Smith, the voice oh. of Lisa, was in Maximum Overdrive. How could I forget? <laughs> and uh, one last little thing about this movie. Uh, there's apparently a lot more you can read about the influence on this film from Paul Verhoeven. But uh, he was very influenced by the Wild Bunch when he made this movie. Which I can kind of understand because you've got like the the gang of kind of bandit characters and or the outlaws in the wild bunch. And then you right. have this kind of band of ne'er-do-wells. I don't even want to call them bandits. They're just, they're more like pirates, but on land where they just like run around yeah. and do whatever the fuck they want and take shit totally. from people. Totally. And apparently Paul Verhoeven loved the wild bunch, but was disappointed by the main conflict in the movie. And so his original script for flesh and blood, the main plot was about the, like general that the king forced to turn on his men in the beginning of this movie. It was going to be more about Martin, the Rudger Hauer character going like toe to toe with him. But then the studio apparently wanted a love interest. So the entire fucking part of Jennifer Jason Lee's character, who's like the main character of the movie was added in after the fact by Paul Verhoeven based on studio notes and he has said that uh, never again would he let studio notes dictate that much of the film for one of his movies because he's still kind of upset about the way it turned out. Like, well, that that feels like that changes everything. I know. She is like arguably the lead character. Yeah, like the whole movie's based around her. Like, <laughs> yeah, like she's the impetus for all the action that takes place at the end because they're kind of fighting over her and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that's fucking crazy. That's a bold choice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's flesh and blood. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, shall we switch gears yet again and go with a completely different tone? Please, let's let's do it. Jumping ahead a couple of decades, we have a Knight's Tale from two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a knight, and I will put myself to the hazard. A knight in your heart, but not on paper, and paper's all that matters to them. William, I love you. I love you. You. And I'm sorry, but I won't see you led away bound for the stocks. Oh, but you will see me run? No! Damn your pride, William. It is you and only you that will not see you run. My pride is the only thing they can't take from me. They can take it from you. They can and they will. Oh, they will. But love they cannot take. 
And and where will we live? In in my hovel. With the pigs inside in winter so they won't freeze. Yes, William, with the pigs. With the pigs. The poor can marry for love. Oh, Jocelyn, you speak of what you do not know. William, I beg you. Please. Run, do it for love. And I feel like the first thing that has to be said about this movie, or like the first conversation that needs to happen, mm. a medieval movie about knights and jousting with a largely classic rock soundtrack. Where do you fall on that? I can remember. This feels like from like our generation, the first like particularly like movie trailer and then like movie itself that like used like that kind of a soundtrack, I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like like how modern trailers are now. This was like that back in 2000 or 2001. You mean where every trailer has to be like edited to, and set yeah. to a song, a recognizable song? Yeah, absolutely. You know, without looking into it further, I feel like this is this would be like one of the first ones for sure. Mm-hmm. Like of like our generation. I don't hate it. You know, um. I'm on record as an ACDC fan, so if that ACDC songs are going to show up in a jousting movie, I'm <laughs> going to be all for that. Mm-hmm. Actually, as I was watching, so I remembered that of this movie, like I said, you know, in the beginning I had seen it once already, just the one time. Yeah. As I was watching it this time, I thought, like, there should have been more modern music. Really? Actually. Well, yeah, because at times there's, like, just kind of, it goes back to like, there's a few instances of just like standard kind of harps, medieval music, where I was felt like if I was like, if I sat down, I feel like I could probably just go jam pack the movie completely with like modern rock jams. Well, how many licensed songs do you think are in the average movie, like pre-existing pop music? Like, I don't know, one or two probably. This movie has at least 10 because I have a list here in front of me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think like, that, and there should have been more. The movie I'm opens basically with We Will Rock You, which I feel like is the most jarring one because they actually show. Yeah, they acted out. The characters in the movie, like keeping yeah. the beat, which I kind of, un- I understand what they're going for because it's like the movie's all about jousting tournaments, which basically feels like boxing, but for the era, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people make noise and there's like music that plays during sporting events that people like get involved with. Right. So I kind of understand what they're doing. But when the whole audience like standing on the wooden rafters around this right. like horse based event is like stomping and clapping, it's just a yeah. little, little it, off putting to me. Yeah, it, it goes on a little longer than it should. Mm-hmm. Like you, you could it could be like a wink and a nod kind of thing. But then they like do like, you know. It, it lingers for quite a while. So yeah. I, I agree with that part. But the one that really, I'm just like, what is this song doing in a fucking medieval movie is Lowrider. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, low for sure. Rider. In the middle of yeah. a fucking medieval night movie. <laughs> yeah, like that, that one probably, I would say, is the worst choice they picked. And I get it because this was them trying to make a movie, like a period piece like this, but packed with like, Young, attractive people and funny mm-hmm. stuff and like exciting 
action, but for like a high school, college aged audience. Right. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I I'm go back and forth over whether I think it's unique and interesting or I just don't like it and it doesn't work. It's it to me. It's one of those things that like I don't ever want to see again. Like that kind of thing where it's like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, this is a, you know, Pride and Prejudice, but it's got a rap soundtrack or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's little bits of that in like Tarantino movies, because especially since he started doing period pieces, like, uh, Cat People plays at the end of Inglorious Bastards, and there's a rap song like towards the end of. Django Unchained when they're riding to mm-hmm. the candy ranch. Mm, mm-hmm. And like, you know, he's very good at picking out. It's not just like, okay, we're going to put Queen in there and we're going to put uh, Eric Clapton right. in there. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, he's being a little more decisive about yeah. his picks. That's like, and it's like, it fits with like his style. But I mean, like where this movie feels like it's, I don't want to say based around the soundtrack, but like that's kind of, mm-hmm. you would almost think it's like the, a main draw or like a main like sticking point for people's memory of it. I would definitely say that's true. Yeah. Like it had Uh, been a long time for me as well since I saw this. And the things that I could remember that stuck out in my mind were Heath Ledger and Shannon Sossaman were the leads. It was a movie about jousting. Like it's not about, you know, battles and stuff. It's about mm -hmm. the sport of jousting. And I think the third thing that I could say that I really remembered about it was the opening with Queen. Yeah, I just remembered it being like jam-packed with modern music. Even the Queen part, I didn't necessarily remember that exact bit. I think that one sticks out in my mind just because it has the visual to go along with it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting choice. And uh, I was curious to see if the director had anything to say about it. And he has gone on record as saying that he was trying to, and this is kind of a weird idea, but he was trying to convey once upon a time, you know, back in that era, they had like music that would be played in an event like that. And it was the music of the time that would like get an audience riled up and, mm. you know, would be like, right. We will rock you for like a sporting event in the year 2001 when this movie came out, like that's the alternative to what they had back then. So Mm. he was trying to make it accessible for like a younger modern audience and get across like the feeling that the music of the time was supposed to be giving. That makes actually makes sense to me. It's like you want like you to be pumped up like they would have been Mm -hmm. hundreds of years ago. And then in the director's defense, I also read that Roger Ebert made a comment that uh, orchestras hadn't been invented yet. So if it just had like orchestral score, like that wouldn't make any Mm -hmm. more sense than the modern (laughs) rock music. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point. Cheeky bastard, Roger Ebert. (laughs) But uh, yeah, Uh, what do you feel about the movie aside from the music? Um, I enjoy it. You know, I think it's 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 kind of like borders on B movie. <laughs> oh, because that's a good way to put it. Yeah, because um, it's like pretty schlocky. You know, like the acting and like even like uh, your girl Shannon there. Like when she shows up and like some of the things she's wearing. Oh yeah, I'm like I don't I don't understand <laughs> some of her outfits going on. and especially some of her hairstyles in the movie yeah. remind yeah. me more of Queen Amidala in the Phantom Menace. To- totally. There's one where it's like times. she's got like it's like spiky hair coming out the back and I think part of it's pink or something. It's red. It's red and black, yeah. yeah. And it's I'm, just like Mills, people did not look like that. 
I got to be honest, I don't hate it. I mean, I think it's a cool aesthetic, and it's just another thing of like, okay, we're going to make a medieval movie. Right. But it's got to appeal to young people today. So, mm-hmm. like, everyone can't just have, like, long, curly hair and whatever. Like, right. Shannon Sossaman, and I mean, it kind of worked on me. Like, we want her to be attractive to, like, young guys today. Just like um, the director, uh, whose name is Brian Helgeland, he also wrote the movie, he chose... Uh, Heath Ledger as the lead because just before this Sony had made uh, The Patriot and it hadn't come out yet but Brian Helgeland since he worked for them had seen like dailies and was like oh Mm. this guy's gonna be like the next big young hot actor so I want to put him in the movie like just you know putting sexy young people in there and giving them a little bit of a modern aesthetic that a younger audience can grab onto along with the music and the comedy. And, you know, this is basically like a kind of a dumbed down medieval version of Rocky or something. It's just like a, a, it's like a championship tournament sports movie. Yeah. Yeah. With like a good soundtrack. Yeah. So it's just, there's a lot of shorthand going on. Yeah. I did. I did one part. I liked what I read probably like halfway through the movie, I think I must have like stopped watching it like for one night and I picked it up the next night. So in between that I read something about it online and it said like uh the jousting, like the actual not the swords, what do they call them? The uh uh what's the official name for those things? Yeah, the sticks. The <laughs> the sticks. Those big sticks they have. Oh god, they say uh, it about seven hundred times in the movie and yeah. now I can't remember what they're called either. Yeah, me neither. Um, anyways, those things that they made for the movie, so like the prop ones they had were like hollowed out. Yeah. And they were made of like a really like soft, like brittle wood. So they'd explode. And then also like the hollow middles, they filled with uncooked spaghetti. Really? Yeah. So just like what the, so like I said, I saw that like a halfway lance. through the, they're called lances. Lance, yeah. So halfway through the movie, I read that. So when I watched like the rest of it, every time like one of those exploded, it's like literally, dude, there's just spaghetti flying everywhere. <laughs> like I loved it. That's hilarious. I was like, this is so ridiculous. But like, like I said, like I wouldn't want to see the same. Like I don't want to see a bunch of period films with like these same kind of, you know, aspects. But like in the a fact time capsule. <laughs> but yeah, the fact that one exists in a kind of like a time capsule kind of way. And then even to watch it now where, like, so many people in the movie are went on to, like, superstardom where, like, the main people in this movie all went on to be, like, uh, you know, the Joker and the Vision, uh, Ro- Robert Baratheon from Game of Thrones and, yeah, Vision and, you know, Robert Tudyk is from, uh, you know, was it Star Wars? Like, yeah, Alan Tudyk. Alan, Alan Tudyk. He's in Star Wars, he's in Firefly, he's in everything yeah. nerdy you can possibly think yeah. of. So like to, I I always kind of like get a kick out of seeing like actors I like now before they were anybody. Mhm. So Yeah, I mean it's got a decent cast. Yeah. I liked Paul Bettany. I I like Paul Bettany anyways, but Yeah, he's extremely charismatic in this. Yeah. Like just over the top, but I enjoyed it. And so he plays Jeffrey Chaucer, the actual poet and mm-hmm. uh one thing I thought was interesting I read about the movie is that apparently there is like a six month to one year frame of time where historians 
don't know where Chaucer was or what he was doing. And so the whole concept behind this movie was like when he returned from that like mysterious hiatus where like nobody knew where he was for like a year. Uh, mm-hmm. He the first thing he wrote was Canterbury Tales, the first part of which is called A Knight's Tale. And oh. so the whole idea behind this movie was let's tell the story of where Geoffrey Chaucer was during that year, <laughs> which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's that is neat. It just adds to like the weird, which I I like. Yeah, I will admit that as stereotypical and corny and obnoxious as this movie is, it's undeniably watchable. Mm-hmm. And no doubt, even though there's a lot of shit that. I just don't buy. It's just simple movie language that's like comfortable and easy to just like snuggle in and yeah. watch for two hours. Right. Like if there could be like a popcorn jousting movie, it is this. It is this, 100%. Right. <laughs> like one thing. And it couldn't be made at any other time and no. be as enjoyable as it is. You yeah. Know, if it came out now, it'd just be weird. Yeah. But I, I agree. The- if it came out now, it would probably be like darker and douchier. <laughs> yes. Totally. But like, there's things like, uh, okay, so when when Heath Ledger's character first meets Shannon Sossaman, she's some kind of like, ro- well, not royalty. She's like a high class lady or whatever, mm-hmm. and she's like a member of the church or whatever. Uh, and I understand that when he's performing in a tournament in her city, why she's there. But then, why is she following the tournament around to all these different cities around Europe? Like, yeah, she good. goes around to every one of them, and, like, every tournament, he's like, oh, I, you know, can't wait to see her again. Uh, mm-hmm. Why is she following the tournament around? <laughs> I never could figure that out. Because she, great, like, great. is devoted to the church, mm-hmm. and I assume that she just lives, has permanent residence in the the first city that we see a tournament in. So why is she always at these different tournaments? Like, I couldn't wrap my head around that, and I'm like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's just She's so that... F- yeah. She's got to follow her boo. Yeah, she's there for him to chase. And uh, One thing I'll say about this movie we haven't mentioned yet. One of the all-time great fucking absolutely despicable asshole villains who you just oh, want to punch dude. in the face. Love him. He's got the most punchable face we might have had yet on Triple Threat. Maybe. Rufus fucking Sewell, man. A guy who... <laughs> I know He's got a name that you want to punch. <laughs> I know him more for his name than anything. Like that is a name that I recognize. Like yeah. I've heard plenty of times. Right. I looked him up and I am not familiar with a lot of his filmography. Like a lot of things I recognize the titles of, but not things I've seen. Like the one thing I really know him from is Dark City aside from this. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've never seen that one, so uh do me a favor and write that down on your list there. Yeah. I'll Dark deal. City. <laughs> Need a longer piece of paper. I'm gonna need like one of those like old uh, computer pr- papers that just come out of a box and they're all connected. <laughs> still, you know? It's all like perforated sheets. Uh huh. Dark city. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, he's great. He's like perfect casting. Yeah. Just God, what a fucking sourpuss that guy has. Oh, it's just got a shitty face. I mean, he's just like a smug perk. Yeah. You know. But it God, is, he makes great. a good villain. He really, really yeah, does. Great, cool suit of armor. You know, I was in, I was into that. Mm-hmm. So the like production value of the movie is pretty good. Mm-hmm. As far as like set building and all that. Yeah. 
Do you have any idea what the budget was for this movie? It's higher than I thought. I don't. I mean, I'd have to, if I had to guess, was it 01? It's got to be 2001. Like 40? 65. Ooh. 65 mil. And the funny thing is, I was reading that uh, they filmed this movie in the Czech Republic, which I never would have guessed. And so the okay. majority of the uh, the extras, because there's always crowds and crowds of people at all these tournament scenes, most of them couldn't speak English. And so like a lot of times things would be happening, like uh, Paul Bettany would be standing up there making some grand speech and nobody could understand him. So like he'd get to the end of like a sentence where there was supposed to be cheering and there would just be nothing because nobody knew what he was saying to like understand the cue to mm. cheer. Oh, okay. And I just can't imagine. <laughs> Apparently, uh, I I didn't write it down, but uh, Paul Bettany got some kind of like uh, he had some kind of medical condition after the movie because he spent the entire film shouting because his oh, like laryngitis. Was yeah, it? yeah, I think it was laryngitis because uh, you know his role is basically the yeah. hype man for the group, uh, big time. But he's good at it too. Yeah, mm. I just thought that was funny. I never would have guessed that the movie was filmed in the Czech Republic. No. Same. Or or cost that much, yeah. But uh, return on investment not bad. Made one hundred and seventeen point five million in the box office. Mm, that'll work. So the uh, you know the equation worked. The uh, mm. all, all the stuff that they did to make it appeal to that younger audience. Yeah, totally. But one of my all time favorite behind the scenes stories I've ever read. I just discovered today when I was making my notes for this, and it pertains to the uh, perceived success of the film. Okay. So there is a reviewer, a film reviewer named Dirk Manning. or No, sorry, David Manning. Dirk Manning, I think, is a real person. I think he's a cartoonist. (laughs) David Manning, not a real human being. Uh, apparently somebody who was working in the advertising department for Sony in the early 2000s made up a movie reviewer from some small podunk town named David Manning and wrote quotes from him in praise of four different Sony films, including A Knight's Tale. Mm -hmm. And then Newsweek somehow found out about it, and they like wrote a story about it. And this came right after... Uh, the aforementioned The Patriot, it was revealed that in the advertising campaign for that movie, uh, Sony employees posed as viewers of the film in the advertising, like praising the film, as though they like just walked out of a theater and saw it and were like, oh man, it's so good. But they were paid employees. That's crazy. And because of this, on August 3rd, 2005, Sony made an out-of-court settlement and agreed to refund $5 each to dissatisfied customers who saw Hollow Man, The Animal, The Patriot, A Knight's Tale, and Vertical Limit in American theaters. <laughs> How fucking hilarious is that? Dude, what? <laughs> you imagine but having to go to court for that? They actually agreed to pay $5 to anybody who was dissatisfied with the movie because of this bullshit they pulled. Wow. How stupid is that? Like, you couldn't find an actual reviewer somewhere that could say something, whether they, you know, felt that way or not, like, positive about the movie. Just super fucking weird. I couldn't believe it when I went down that rabbit hole on Wikipedia. I love it. Like, there's an entire Wikipedia page for this fictional David Manning uh, reviewer. (laughs) Uh, Makes me like the movie even more now. Yeah. 
Oh, also wow. Shannon Sossaman's first film. Oh, no way. Yeah, I don't know if she'd done any TV or anything before, but it looked like this was her first acting credit. Oh, wild in the streets, Mills. For sure. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. It's like a very watchable, entertaining film that mm-hmm. I don't really have super strong feelings about. Like, if I never watched this again, like, it's fine. But, you know, it is not a bad film. All right, all right. Uh, anything else to say about Knight's Tale? No, I think we're good. I think we should talk some posters. All right. Let's do it. Mm. Uh, first up, we have Excalibur, uh, which, as I meant, just look at the fucking glowy lights and yeah. like shiny shit all over this thing. Oh, yeah. There's I love some, it, man. Uh, what do you call it? Lens flares all over the place. Yeah. Beautiful, painted, airbrushed uh, poster by Bob Peak, mm-hmm. who I'm a big fan of. I have a poster book of like all of his movie posters and stuff and advertising artwork. Hmm. And his son, I don't remember his name, uh, his son is actually a painter as well and painted the posters for all of like the first five Nightmare on Elm Street movies, which also, I think it's Matt Peak is his name. Uh, Also, if you look at those, tons of fucking lens flare, like glints of light off of Freddy Krueger's claws, just like his dad's stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty iconic, those ones, too. Yeah. Yeah, I gotta look more into that. Mm Mm-hmm. I dig this one. It's cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very like fantasy, you know, swords and armor. Yeah. The one thing I would say is a detriment is the actual artwork. I feel like there's not really a clear focal point. Oh, certainly. Like there's if, not. If yeah, anything, there's... it's the sword. But even that, it's not like my eye is not exactly drawn yeah. there. So because, it's. Yeah, because it's like off center and like the, the, Two guys in armor are almost too big. Mm-hmm. That like those two elements, I feel like are fighting for the focus when one of them should be clearly mm-hmm. feeling that. But it is a beautiful piece of artwork. Yeah, I'll say that. No, it is. It is cool. It feels it's a sign of the times, which I like. Mm-hmm. Forged by a god, foretold by a wizard, found by a king. Mm-hmm. Preach. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to Flesh and Blood. I think there's a couple different posters out there for yeah. this one, a couple different designs. I saw two of them, like this one and then another one that's, I think, like uh, more of like an action kind of thing going on in the middle. Yeah, I think the other one's a little more busy than this. But uh, yeah. again, just beautifully painted old yeah. school movie poster artwork. I, I like this poster a lot. It's yeah. a good, great Redgar Howard likeness, too. Mm-hmm. But I actually like this because it's, you know, the on the white background. Everything's like, stands out really well. Yeah, I would say I'd like this poster even more if they got rid of the extremely large text at the top and yeah. just, like, used, like, the white border was a little smaller and the artwork was a little bigger. Uh, in a savage time torn between two rivals, she fought for survival with the only weapon she had herself that's a good mm-hmm. line though it for is. this movie it fits. It she works, fought yeah. for survival with the only weapon she had herself that is actually a really good line yeah and it, it's in the the image itself like covers the entire movie yeah yeah uh i'll say that while the two likenesses up top are really good that does not look like jennifer jason lee in no. the center but yeah no not even a little but at least she's smaller so it's not as it's still a great painting noticeable yeah it really is yeah 
dig it a lot. Also, you know, I love this is doesn't really have any bearing on the poster, but I love the old school Orion logo. I, thought, oh, I was just going to say, <laughs> yes, it's perfect. Uh, I love that so much. I need that on a t-shirt, Mills. And then we have just a, someone dropped a yes, turd in my eyeball. Just, just everything wrong with movie posters. Mm-hmm. Represented in a night's tale. Our movie has a hot young guy. Let's just show his face on the poster with his hair kind of in his eyes. Yeah. You could just it could just say, He will rock you a generic title. (laughs) And it could be any movie. Yeah. I uh you know, we talked an awful lot about the music in the movie. I hate the fact that the tagline for this is he will rock you. Yeah. Because again, yeah, it's terrible. I agree completely that that's uh, there's just nothing good about this poster. It was nothing. It's just, it's Heath Ledger. I guess if he's a heartthrob, that's why they did it. Yeah. But as far as movie posters, I mean, it, and unfortunately, it's like before even looking it up, I knew this was the poster because it was like <laughs> that popular of a thing. Yeah. But I feel like I was very familiar with this image from ads yeah. on comic books. It's just terrible. It's just terrible. You know. I don't even like the font for the title. It's very boring. Yeah. It's just junk and that like that, that tiny a. Oh yeah, it's, it's just there's so many mistakes here. But yeah, it is. Uh, this is when it all started. Two thousand one, man. It was just like you know, like oh, I mean, it it can't hold a candle to the other two. No, it's like this is what we can do with a computer. Look, and you're like, oh, good job, intern. <laughs> um, I give it to Flesh and Blood. That's my jam, jam right there. Yeah, uh, man, it's tough between Excalibur and Flesh and Blood. I mean, I, Excal- don't have, I don't have the issues with Flesh and Blood that I do with the Excalibur one, as far as like the yeah. visual. Like, Flesh and Blood there. is a clearer image, and like both of them are extremely well painted. I feel like just as a visual feast for thine eyes, I go to Excalibur more. Oh, all right. I'll give uh, I'll give Excalibur the sword to the movie Excalibur. Ah, I will give uh, the bloody sword of saint martin embedded in an evil nazi's throat to flesh and blood (laughs) Uh and i will give a shattered discarded jousting lance to a knight's tail well done (laughs) well done sir so now by bar burn time yeah 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 uh would you like to go first or shall i i'll go first by all means a surprise to no one I'm not launching it into the sun, <laughs> but I am going to burn 1981's Excalibur. Oh, that's actually not where I was expecting you to go. Oh, interesting. Well, I didn't find it not enjoyable at all. It's just, it's just like I said before, it just feels messy and it's too long. I like the some of the armor bits. <laughs> Imagine ex- the three-hour version. <laughs> Oh, I don't even want to. I really don't. I wonder if that would fix any of the pacing issues. I'm betting no. I bet you it's just 45 more minutes of random sequences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, just imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I couldn't even imagine what's on the, the cutting room floor of that one. Yeah, so I wouldn't say necessarily not worth watching at all, but just it was kind of a chore, I felt like, in the end. Exciting to see some random actors that would go on to be big timers, but mm-hmm. so then it brings it down to Flesh and Blood and A Night's Tale. When it comes down to the Barrow Mills, yes, 
I will borrow Flesh and Blood. Wow, really? Yeah, and I you're will buying buy a night still. <laughs> I know that's crazy. That I was, I was kind of bouncing around. I could just see you are a basic bitch, Dexberger. I mean, that's one way of putting it, I guess. Um, I don't know. Like I said, just like the the B movie fun of Knight's Tale, I just kind of like could see myself like putting that on as as almost like a to like have a laugh at, at like with and at the movie where I found Flesh and Blood enjoyable, but I just don't. I go. I can't already can't like picture myself like dying to ever watch it again. Mm. So I mean it's 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 Verhoeven in like all the great ways it should be, but do you find I I, I don't know why I never really thought about this before. When you're doing your buy borrow burn, are you thinking of it literally like if I had to buy and own one of these to rewatch, like that's how you choose? Kinda. Or is it just which one you liked the most, regardless of whether you would like rewatch it? Um, I don't think it's the same every time we do it. Uh-huh. But it is a factor for me to think like. But in this like case, re- you picked Knight's Tale partially because it's uh, the most rewatchable, would you say? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Re- rewatchability is a thing for me when I'm picking hmm. mine. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure. definitely the feel, other way where I just I've, put them in order of which ones I liked the most. I feel like that's the essence of this thing of ours. So. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know why that never occurred to me. Something about what you were just saying made me think like, is yeah. he actually is he actually imagining buying this? <laughs> well, yeah, see, because it's not like Is he actually building a catapult that can send movies to the sun? <laughs> yes. Well, that part, yes. Um, but yeah, in like the like the weird like I would I don't even want to think of like what like besides you, what film like Reddit fan would say like what kind of an asshole would pick Knight's Tale over Flesh and Blood, but <laughs> I feel I literally feel Take like I could Reddit. put I, I feel like I could put like I would like if like had people over and like what's a movie we want to like laugh at its ludicrousness? I'd be like, oh Knight's Tale. <laughs> Man. I'm so that's just I'm beginning to realize that you put so much more thought into this process than I ever imagined. Oh. Like you're thinking about what you're going to show to people when you're having yeah. friends over to the house. I'm, I'm realizing how little thought you put into it. <laughs> it's just gut reaction. What I like the most, man. <laughs> I can dig it. I can dig it. So yeah, that's how I'm going, Mills. All right. Fascinating. Hmm. You know, I feel like I felt like throwing some curveballs tonight. <laughs> uh, for me, I'm a hundred percent buying Flesh and Blood. I mean, if you couldn't tell from how much I was raving about it and Paul Verhoeven like a half Mm -hmm. hour ago, uh, I super love this time period. I feel like I haven't seen any of his foreign language films, and I would very much like to. I've heard very good things about Spetters, but um, (laughs) (laughs) that's what it's called. (laughs) It's got Rutger Hauer in it. Mm -hmm. I've heard very good things about that movie. But I just feel like I've always, or at least, you know, for the last several years, felt that just one of the most solid filmographies, like consistent movie to movie to movie to movie filmographies. Again, Showgirls notwithstanding, but I don't hate that movie. I own it. Mm-hmm. I just think Paul. How Verhoeven, many times have you watched it? Only once. I'm finding that out with you, Mills, that I, you don't rewatch a lot of movies. 
because I'm, you know, I got to collect them all, Dex. I know. I'm you constantly catch trying them all, so you to watch things them. I haven't seen before, so yeah. I frequently go without the rewatch. Which like it, very frequently. Like, I guess I would have guessed that's frequent, but it seems like it's even more frequent than I ever would have thought. Dex, uh, thanks to the movie app that I recently downloaded and started using, I can tell you that I have mm. 717 movies on Blu-ray alone. Like, you, how 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 long would it take to rewatch all those? Oh shit! Let's start with watching them. Period, Mills. <laughs> There's about a hundred of them that I haven't watched yet. <laughs> but um, I guess I guess. <laughs> I mean that that fits with like that fits with your personality though, because like I know like if we if we're going out to eat and it's like a burger place, you're gonna be like, I've never had kangaroo. Let me try that. <laughs> Where I'd be like, Oh, the jalapeno burger is so good. Let me have that again. Yeah, I mean, I like to be a little bit adventurous, but it's, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I, I there's just so it. many movies that I want to watch. This is why, like, I feel like this is branching off into an entire conversation we don't need to be having right now. But, you know, people always recommending, like, the TV shows that they really like. Um, and even if mm-hmm. it's someone whose opinion I actually trust, there's a good chance I'm not going to get around to the show they're recommending me unless I already was predisposed to be mm. interested in it. Because mm-hmm. there's already 700 other things I want to watch and read. Right. And, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what I was saying, I just think that Paul Verhoeven has an incredible filmography from, I've always thought this, from Robocop to Hollow Man. Now I have to update that opinion. He has an incredible filmography from Flesh and Blood to Hollow Man. Oh, look at that. Because I really did like the cut of this movie's jib. Like, it's not my favorite of his films or anything, but... It is a hundred percent up, down, backwards, and forwards a Paul Verhoeven movie, and that is appealing to me. Did you purchase it yet? No, but a hundred percent I would with that beautiful, beautiful poster art. Uh huh. Especially if it was like Shout Factory with a nice reversible with some new artwork is <laughs> another option. Oh, that's a spirit. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody's put this out uh, in an interesting release, but you know, I mm. would definitely buy this and put it on my. I'm sure shelf. you'll find out. Yeah. So then the toss-up, and it's not even that much of a toss-up for me, between uh, Borrow and Sun Launcher is uh, <laughs> Excalibur and the Knight's Tale. A Knight's Tale, like I said just a couple of minutes ago, if I never watched it again, I'd be fine. Mm. You know, It is a perfectly entertaining movie that I don't really have anything against, but I don't feel like, aside from the gorgeous visage of Shannon Sossaman, I don't really feel like it... <laughs> It adds anything of value to my life. Whereas, yes, Excalibur, as Roger Ebert said, is a mess. It is also, as he said, a uh, a wondrous, what do you call it? Wondrous spectacle or something like that? Feast for the eye yeah. or whatever. Just like between A Knight's Tale and where the $65 million went to make that movie and where the like 6 million or whatever 11 million that they put into Excalibur like what they managed visually and conceptually in that movie mm-hmm. i you know like it's a kind of movie where it's kind of so random in the plot department you could just put on some like cool ass music turn the lights mm-hmm. down turn the sound off and just like you know yeah. while you're doing whatever else just look over at the tv every now and then and see the the right. green glint off of Excalibur and the shiny ass fucking armor and that 
that crazy <laughs> fucking golden creepy baby head mask helmet uh-huh. thing that uh, Arthur's yeah. son wears and the fucking scene with the corpses hanging out of the trees that looked like mm. an actual eyeball being plucked out of that corpse head by a real crow did it not it probably was i mean the the body was fake but i bet that was a real eyeball yeah i mean there's like a a weird kind of hazy soft glow to everything in the movie and mm-hmm. visually i really liked it and you know the subject matter was interesting it's just maybe presented in a little bit of an unusual way but uh, yeah. much more interesting of a movie to me than A Knight's Tale, which, you know, doesn't always mean that I prefer, you know, there are times where there's just some corny, stupid, watchable shit that I like more than, you know, 2001 yeah. A Space Odyssey or something like that, but. Right. Your your love of fit, the Fast and the Furious movies is well done. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, for sure, for me personally, Excalibur was a more engaging watch than A Knight's Tale. So A Knight's A Knight's Tale is <laughs> A Knight's Tale is my Fast and the Furious of jousting movies. <laughs> Very specific genre, but uh, I'll uh, let you have it. I'll let you have uh, it. But I love it. My copy of A Knight's Tale that I don't actually own is getting fired into space, and I'll borrow uh, like Excalibur from you anytime. It's it's been a while since I feel like we've disagreed completely yeah. on all three. Yeah, so for sure. This, this feels good. This warms my cold dead heart. <laughs> it's got to happen every now and then. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's gonna just about bring us to the end of the show. You know what that means? I do, and I'm very mm-hmm. excited as I always I'm, am. Millsy, yes. How many trifectas do we have currently? Currently, up on the chopping block, we have two hundred and thirteen. 213. All right. Random number, Jenny. <laughs> what do you got for us, Jenny? 120. 120. Next episode, we are going to be discussing The Last Man on Earth. Mm. What could it all mean? I'll tell you. We will mm. not be watching the movie The Last Man on Earth, but that is a movie. Correct. <laughs> we zigged when you thought we'd zag. Yeah. Not necessarily the most uh, obtuse title we've ever had, but I bet you we're going to surprise people with at least one or two of these. Mm-hmm. So I like it. think outside the box, dear listener, and yeah. by all means, let us know what you think we're going to be watching next episode. Give it a try if you dare. <laughs> yes. All right, well, uh, that's another episode Mm. in the books. I think Mm -hmm. we're about done here. So uh, until next time, I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Ross Bo Pallenberg. (laughs) Uh, I wish I could remember uh, Heath Ledger's completely obnoxious, long, fake name. Oh, it's Baron Von Lichtenstein. Yeah, I'll be be Von Lichtenstein. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, 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 happy.